What Jesus is about to do and through what Jesus is about to do, it's going to bring praise and honor to God. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 65th episode of Working with the Word. Today we'll be continuing our series in the Gospel of John as we're looking at John chapter 12, wrapping out this section on the crisis that we've been looking at in chapters 9 through 12, as well as really ending this first half of the book and talking about some important points that we'll see come out in this chapter today. Jesus' hour has finally come. We see that there are people who are coming to Jesus, but even as they come to him and have seen his signs, he very clearly explains the fact that they're unable to believe in him and why that is, based on their hardness of heart and their blindness. We get a good summary of Jesus' mission here in this chapter as well. As a reminder, as always, since we are not rereading the chapter in this particular episode, we encourage you to do some observation on your own before you tune in and listen to our thoughts on interpretation and application today. You could go back to episode 61 and listen to me read this chapter starting around the 21-minute, 6-second mark through about the 27-minute mark, or you can just take a few minutes to read this on your own as well. So as we get into our section for today in John chapter 12, we begin following some events from the previous chapter. Jesus has risen Lazarus from the dead. The Pharisees and the Jewish leaders are very intent now and say, we have to do something about Jesus. We're going to lose all of our position and power and popularity. And we open up the chapter with a few days before the Passover feast. They're there with Lazarus's family, people here in the setting of Bethany. What's going on here at Bethany? So remember, Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem, and so Jesus is really close to uh, the place where he's going to die. And as Jesus is with uh, Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, Mary anoints Jesus' feet. Very famous story. First 11 verses of of the chapter tell us about uh, Mary taking this perfume and anointing Jesus' feet and then wiping his feet with her hair. And uh, before we get into that, Verse 1, I think, kind of sets a timeline for us and begins a timeline for the last week of Jesus' life. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So here's just a possible timeline to give us some structure, looking ahead to what's going to happen. Six days before the Passover that's mentioned here is probably Saturday, um, depending on how days are counted. In verse 12 of chapter 2, it says the next day, and that's talking about when Jesus enters Jerusalem. So that would be what's known as Palm Sunday. And then we have another time in chapter 13 and verse 1. It it mentions, in chapter 13, verse 1, it mentions the Passover festival that they're getting ready to eat. That would be Thursday evening. And so in between chapter 12 and chapter 13, there's a lot of things that are skipped between Sunday and Thursday that... John doesn't record for us. I mean, you go back to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they tell us about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, which John does tell us about. But there's a lot of conversations, debates between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. In Matthew, Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. John doesn't record any of that. What he does is he skips all of that, and he's focusing on these private conversations with, you know, individuals and especially leading up to his death, he's going to talk to his disciples. 
Uh, we'll talk more about that later on. But that's just a little bit of a timeline before his crucifixion on that following Friday, and then, of course, the, the resurrection on Sunday. Back to the story about Mary, though. This is an interesting story because you have a character development with both Mary and Judas. And we've already met Mary. This is Lazarus's sister from chapter 11. Remember, she, was, she came to Jesus and said, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And she's weeping along with the Jews. Well, this action that she does here, what she does here is she brings this gift to him and it shows her love for Jesus. She takes this pound of expensive perfume. This is not the cheapo stuff. <laughs> and she pours it all out on his feet. And in verse 3, it says, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And I can kind of picture them choking and <laughs> having a hard time breathing because this is, this is a strong aroma. And, you know, when, when my wife puts on perfume, she just squirts it a couple times, just that fine mist creates a, a pretty strong scent. Well, she pours out the whole thing. Yeah, This is a costly gift, and, and it shows her love for Jesus. On the other hand, Judas's character development is going on too as a contrast. And Judas, in verse 4, Judas Iscariot, who is about to betray him, speaks and says, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So Judas kind of shows us how much this perfume was worth almost an entire year's wage for a common worker. That's an expensive bottle for Mary just to pour it out. But he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And so Judas's greedy response shows his true character. He's a thief, only mostly interested in taking what doesn't belong to him. And I think this account really introduces the reason for why he's going to betray Jesus in just a few chapters. Mm -hmm. And so you see that Mary gives... Judas takes. So there's an interesting contrast with that. Yeah. Well, beginning in verse 12, it says, The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches and went out to meet him. And of course, they're shouting as they're going along the road with him, they're laying out their coats before him. This is a major event that marks Jesus' last week. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of make a big deal about this as kind of the marker for the beginning of, of the events that will follow. And of course, John records it here as well, but he's going to more focus on what Jesus says immediately after this. He'll talk about that in just a second with the hour that's coming. But in verse 16, as the disciples are seeing all of these events, it says they did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, we'll also talk about that, push that ahead for just a minute. Then they remembered that these things had been written about him, and they had done these things to him. It's something that John mentioned earlier in the gospel in chapter 2, when Jesus clears the temple, and he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. His disciples didn't understand that at first, but chapter 2, verse 22 says that after his resurrection, they understood he was talking about his body. And so there's, there's another one of those times when John is, is saying, hey, I remember this happening but I didn't understand why, and I understand the significance of it until I saw Jesus die and, and rise from the dead. Yeah. And one other thing before we move on from this, that you know, there's this great crowd that is, is flocking to Jesus, and I'm not sure I ever really understood why. Like, like, what are the crowds so excited about 
I never knew why they knew he was coming, how they knew he was coming. Well, John explains it's because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. In verse 18, it says, this is also why the crowd came to meet him, because they heard he had done this sign, referring to raising Lazarus from the dead. And so it's because this great sign, that's why the people are coming out to him. They're excited. On the other hand, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, are basically panicking in verse 19, saying, look, you," saying to each other, you've accomplished nothing. We've got to do something here in order to stop what Jesus is doing. If he continues going on, the whole world is going to follow after him. So this kind of a tipping point in the story with the Pharisees really digging in and saying, we've got to stop what Jesus is doing here. And that really kind of leads us into talking about what Jesus says, the main focus of this chapter about his hour. Yeah, right before we get to that, starting in verse 20, we see it talks about some Greeks come to the festival to worship there in Jerusalem. Now, this could be Jews who speak Greek. You know that after the invasion and captivity of Israel, when the Assyrians came, they started to disperse some of those. And maybe even after Babylonian captivity, some of that could happen. It could be that's talking about Gentiles who are either proselytes, so people who are not Jews but have you know, started to follow the Jewish religion. Maybe they're not necessarily Gentiles, but they're more of those God-fears we read about in the book of Acts, those who live in other parts of the world but do believe in the God of Israel and him being the one true God. And so while they're not fully into Judaism, they maybe have at least come to the festival. Whoever these people are, John points out that these are non-Jewish people, and they come and they say, we want to see Jesus. It's interesting they approach Philip and say that. Philip and Andrew are the two characters who are talked about in this section. They're both Greek names. Maybe they feel more comfortable approaching them. Maybe they speak Greek better so they could talk with them a little bit easier. I'm getting some major John 1, 44 through 46 vibes back to when Philip extends that invitation to Nathaniel. Nathaniel says, could anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see. Here you have mm-hmm. Greeks who are coming to Jesus and are essentially saying, we want to come and see Jesus as well. And from that statement, like we've been leading up to, not just in this episode, but even episodes before, Jesus replies and says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. All of those statements before, in chapter 2, verse 4, in chapter 7, verse 6, in verse 8, in verse 30, chapter 8, and verse 20, this idea of my time has not yet come, or this happened because his hour had not yet come. Here it is. Jesus is going to finally talk about what he's here to do, how he is on his way to the cross, and then he's going to rise again from the dead. Within this statement of Jesus talking about his coming hour, he gives some implication about what it means to be someone who follows him. He talks about in verse 25 and verse 26, if anyone loves his life, who will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Anyone serves me must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And I think it seems appropriate for Jesus to talk about this here in the fact of that's what he's going to do. He's going to, and rather than love his own life more than the will of his Father, he's going to go do the will of his Father. He's focused on accomplishing mm-hmm. and doing that. And he's setting an example for his disciples there in that day and time and examples for you and for me as well to reflect on about what it means to really be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. Within this great emotional and intense moment as Jesus is talking about his hour, and while we are maybe able to understand that, knowing some things that are to come in the book of John and knowing some things that have been referenced already, that that's talking about his death, 
Jesus is obviously very, maybe concerned isn't the best word, but it's this idea of Jesus is, this is very heavy for him to know that I'm about Mm -hmm. to go die. And so it says in verse 27, Jesus speaks, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. It seems that maybe that's somewhat of a rhetorical question. Maybe we infer that from the way that some of our editors of translators kind of set that up in that statement there. But Jesus is, essentially seems to be saying, you know, what am I going to do? Cry out, God, you know, don't let this happen. Don't do and fulfill your plan to save all of mankind. Mm-hmm. You get implications of that in the prayer in the gardens that record in Matthew and Mark and Luke, this idea of if there's any other way for this to happen other than me to drink the cup of your wrath, then let's pursue that route. But even in those, he says, nevertheless, thy will be done. And here, Jesus says in verse 27, but that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He's come here to die in order to to be that sacrifice for the sins of the world. And he wants his father to be glorified in this moment. This idea of being glorified, maybe some more we'll talk about later in chapter 17 through his prayers he speaks in chapter 17, verse 1 and verse 5. What Jesus is about to do and through what Jesus is about to do, it's going to bring praise and honor to God. And as he says, I've come to this hour for this reason, Father, glorify your name. It says in verse 28, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Ignore the small crack that my voice just had. I think it was probably a little bit more powerful (laughs) and intense and fearful compared to the way I just read and said that. In fact, when people hear the voice, it's not just Jesus, but when other people hear the voice of God there, they're confused. Some hear the voice of God, they simply attribute the supernatural to natural explanations. Hey, that sounded like thunder. I don't know if it was completely cloudless that day, but If you were looking up at blue skies and birds flying overhead and you heard just this booming rumbling, you might say, that sounded like words, but that doesn't make sense. But it's weird that, Mm -hmm. you know, there's thunder when there's no clouds around or no lightning in the area as well. But it's showing, in a sense, their blindness, their hard-heartedness that we're going to talk about more again in just a moment as Jesus calls them out for that. As God speaks on some very significant occasions, whether that be at Jesus' baptism, whether that be when Jesus is transfigured, as it's talked about in the other Gospels as well, God speaks here and says, I am going to glorify your name. But the crowds approach Jesus. Maybe this is the same group of people who just heard the voice of God. And they say, Jesus, what are you talking about? I mean, they've been saying stuff like that for a long mm-hmm. time. But here, that's a summation <laughs> yeah. of what it is and Verse 34, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus has referred before in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, how the Son of Man must be lifted up when he talks to Nicodemus. And we made connections to Numbers 21 with the bronze serpent and looking forward to what's going to happen when Jesus is literally lifted up. In John chapters 18 and 19, as he's lifted up on the cross and eventually will be lifted up in his ascension to heaven. But all of that, Jesus does not give them that clear, specific answer, as we've seen consistent throughout the book of John. Maybe besides the time when they said, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And he's basically like, I have told you, but you don't believe me because Mm -hmm. you're so blind. And he's really emphasizing that basically I am telling you clearly, but you're not listening. And he, he goes off again in verse 35 through verse 36 giving Jesus answers and basically saying, 
you know, I'm the light of this world. And people need to believe in the light and follow the light. And if they believe in the light and follow the light, they'll have eternal life. And this is very consistent with some things that we've seen and earlier in John, in John chapter 12 and verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. Earlier when John introduces the gospel, he talks about how the light came and the people who would believe in the light could become children of God. And he talks about that a little bit more, how it's by following the will of God, not by their birth or things like that. So it's just interesting to see how Jesus is fulfilling that or John's continuing to run with that theme and bring that out here about what was expected of Jesus and has his hour has come. Yeah, when we talk about his hour and the fact that the Son of Man is going to be glorified, one of the things that you and I were kind of surprised with as we were planning this is when Jesus talks about glorifying He's also including his death in that, which is surprising because we don't think of it that way. We think of glorifying as making great. And like we said, we'll come to that in chapter 17, a little bit more talk about what that means. But clearly from this chapter, Jesus includes the fact that he's going to die in his glorification. You know, this is the, this is the king that has come and he's come to do his, his father's will. And I like in verse 33, when he talks about being lifted up, he said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. So clearly Jesus knew exactly how and in what way he was going to die. I think this is talking about his crucifixion, quite literally being lifted up, but maybe also that that lifting up would also be an exalting of him and the Father and their will, and also that it was going to be a redemptive kind of death. And so, yeah, I think when we think about the glory of God, we've got to include his death as part of that, his part of his plan. Think about chapter one, the the word has come, we've seen his glory. Mm -hmm. Well, where do we see that? We see that when he dies for his people, we see the glory of his love and his grace. And that chapter helps me, this chapter really helps me to kind of wrap my mind around how that can be glory. Yeah, I think this is one of those chapters that, along with some of the conversations that Jesus has, they're not necessarily teaching moments like as if Jesus is giving a sermon, necessarily parables, but we see lots of those teaching moments as Jesus has conversations throughout the book of John that are, again, steering us towards believe in me, believe in the work that the Father has done, especially people who probably have a way better understanding of the Old Testament than many of us do, these Jews of this day and time, even if they may have gone beyond it at times, would have knowledge of that, they could have looked and said, while this may not be what we expected, this does seem to be in line with what the prophets were talking about, what Moses was talking about, and the things that he's doing, you know, surely they're not just the work of Satan. But even beyond all of that, even beyond this conversation and the probably dozens of conversations before this, there are still people who don't believe. And that's addressed in other places in the Gospels, but John puts that here. And mm-hmm. we're coming again off of chapter, like, you know, chapter 9, where Jesus talks about those who are blind. We've seen more of that theme carry into chapter 10. You know, you still don't believe even after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. They may believe that Jesus did that sign or did that miracle, but they don't actually believe in him. So why? Why is it that there are some who can see and still don't believe? Yeah, it's interesting the way John words that in verse 37 even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. It's a rebuke against those who didn't believe because Jesus has done so many signs. We've talked about those that you really do have to be blind to 
see those signs happen right before your eyes and then try to come up with another explanation as to why they happened other than Jesus is sent from God. And John's purpose, of course, is to write these things so that we will believe. And so if that's John's purpose, why is it that John has been telling us so much about the people's unbelief? Why is there so much of that going on? Well, I think John shows us both sides of that, the positive and the negative. He shows us clearly reasons to believe all the signs, but he also shows reasons why people disbelieve. I think there's a a practical lesson for us there that sometimes as as we grow in our faith, we also need to be aware of the kinds of things that can crowd out belief in our hearts. In what kind of forms does unbelief show itself? You mentioned in chapter 9, the blind man, and the blind man's parents in chapter 9, verse 22, weren't really willing to stand up for their son. They said, yeah, he's our son, but we don't know why he sees. It's explained there that they were afraid of the Pharisees, because the Pharisees had said, if anyone confesses Jesus as the Messiah, they would be cast out of the synagogue. So, Sometimes unbelief comes because of fear of persecution or repercussion. And ultimately, as John quotes Isaiah the prophet, this quotation shows us unbelief is really a heart problem. It comes down to the blindness of our heart. In verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, who said, Lord, to whom has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That is the beginning of Isaiah chapter 53, which talks about the suffering servant, which is interesting why John chooses that quotation. But then he goes on to say in verse 39, this is why they were unable to believe because Isaiah also said, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. So the people were just unwilling to see what God was showing them. And that's really where unbelief comes from. There may be times when we have an honest, logical reason for just, we don't understand why this might happen, or we we can't get over this hurdle, and so that leads us to unbelief. But when it comes right down to the core of it, unbelief is ultimately a matter of the heart. And we have to understand that the heart is just as much a factor, even more so, than the intellectual, you know, understanding of of things. Mm-hmm. And then in verse 42 and 43, this is an interesting statement about these rulers. I think there's some tension here that, again, may show us some lessons. It says, there were, there were some rulers who believed, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, so that they wouldn't be banned from the synagogue. And you know, I wonder if Nicodemus might be in the background here, because we know Nicodemus has come to some level of belief in Jesus, or at least to respect Jesus. He stood up for him in chapter 7 before his colleagues. But you don't really see Nicodemus come to the forefront until later on when when he's there to help bury Jesus. But in their minds, they would rather keep their status and influence among the Pharisees rather than side with Jesus. And so there's this tension. They believe, but they're not really willing to go you know, the extra mile. They're not really willing to go the full mile at all. And I think this is sometimes our struggle, belief and unbelief. We believe, but are we really willing to give ourselves to the Lord, uh, like we were talking about earlier, doing the Father's will rather than our own? 
Yeah, that's what I was just going to mention is it talks about in verse 25, the one who loves his life will lose it. Definitely sounds like love my mm-hmm. life language right here. Yeah, definitely. And so we have a picture of unbelief here and why the people were unwilling to believe. And that really is a perfect segue into this final section of this chapter, which gives us Jesus's kind of final cry, final declaration to the people. All right, so we'll talk about this moment as being maybe the end of Jesus's public ministry. We'll bring that up again in just a second. But in verse 44 and above verse 44 in the Christian Standard Bible, the editors have put a heading in there that talks about a summary of Jesus's mission. It can be a good practice at times when you're reading or studying to try to avoid some of those headings, to try to not be influenced by them, or maybe even sometimes ignore chapter and verse numbers. We've talked about all that kind of stuff before. But that seems to be a great and appropriate section or title for these final few verses of the chapter. This is almost like an invitation, you know, a final invitation, like you said, a plea for the people of, you need to come and to believe in me and what I've done and what I've been saying. Very clearly in verse 44, the one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. And he's going to talk about the fact that if you're listening to me and hearing my voice and obeying what I say, then you can find eternal life. Jesus has come again as light. That's a key theme within these few verses here. I have come as the light so that we would not remain in darkness. See John 1, John 3, both of those themes are talked about in there that he is this light and that there are those who dwell in darkness but do accept that he is the light and then come out of that darkness. There are some who, as he comes as the light, they kind of retreat into the darkness even more and want to continue to live in their sin and rebellion. Whether they really want to state it like that or would state it like that or not, that's what they're doing. They're choosing our own desires or my own pleasures or passion or pride over what Jesus is calling to transform me and change me to be part of his kingdom and the kingdom of the Lord. And so if we do not take the words of Jesus And really not just, as sometimes we have in our Bibles, the red letters. We're not talking about just the red letter parts. We're really talking about the Mm -hmm. whole of Scripture and saying that if we don't take those words seriously and listen to them and apply them, we need to be rightfully fearful of the judgment that will come for those who do not listen to his words. Within this statement, he's talking about the fact that I came to save people. Jesus' purpose has been to come to do his Father's will and establish the kingdom of God and to bring that salvation, that eternal life, to all who will believe. But should we refuse that and refuse Jesus' teaching, he makes clear that we face a sad and terrible punishment of eternal separation and wrath and judgment from God. And so really here, again, as he's addressing the crowd publicly in John's gospel for the last time before he's going to be on trial, he's making this final plea to them, would you see that I am the light and believe in me? And so we transition to our so what quickly here just to say, like we've often said within our so what's, is the point of belief. You know, there's not really a sign necessarily in here. Some of our more recent episodes, we've been able to say, look at this I am statement. Look at this sign that Jesus does. Believe in him. Just listen to Jesus's invitation in this and believe and understand John writes this so that we would believe and that as we who believe, would come and find eternal life in him and in his name. The seven main signs that have been recorded as we see here 
are done. Really, if I'm going to use my TV show illustration again, uh, I'm not talking about our necessary podcast. Our podcast is in season two, but I see John 1 through 12 as kind of season one of John's gospel. Yeah. You have kind of this great penultimate mid-season finale in chapter six with the feeding of the 5,000 and people leading him. And then chapter eight really being like the mid-season finale where there's a threat of people are trying to stone Jesus, but he eludes their grasp or eludes and escapes at that moment. Then the last half of season one is a lot of tension and conflict as Jesus is still doing great things and there's still implications of some people coming to believe in him, but people are just more and more upset with him. And here in this chapter, he's making his final public declaration of, will you come and listen to me? While at the same time, we're seeing in the background people like Judas. Judas is that guy that like we've seen pictures of throughout the season, but now he's going to start to take a more prominent role in the things he's going to be involved in the story. And really, that's going to kind of seem to fade. Season two of John, I hope I'm not selling John short here, it kind of starts off slow compared to some of the things we've seen recently. There's no like grand signs of multiplying fish or Jesus walking on water. There's no like great intensity between him and the Pharisees, as opposed to like in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The heat is kind of tend to, turned up more within that last week, as those gospels are concerned with Jesus and those Pharisees there. But this is just him hanging out and eating with his disciples. Yeah, and you mentioned that this is it starts out kind of slow. It really starts out unexpected because Jesus first trip twelve in the first 12 chapters, has emphasized his greatness, his glory, and all of his power. But what is he doing at the opening of chapter 13? He's on his hands and knees washing the disciples' feet. Yeah, we definitely see he's emphasizing a part of what it means to be in his kingdom, what it means to be a servant, and what it means to do his work beyond when he leaves this world. Because that's what he's preparing them for. Within this next section, we start this more private ministry with his disciples. It's a very deep, intense conversation with some of his closest friends about what he needs to let them know and teach them before he goes to the cross and before he leaves them when he ascends back to the Father's hand in heaven. There's more to see and more reason to believe as we continue to observe and interpret and apply John's gospel. We don't want you to think that because the signs are done that you know, there's not as much to believe in now or not really as important things. There's still a lot we need to know and find out from these chapters ahead. So we hope you will continue to come with us on this journey to keep reading, keep studying, and most importantly, keep drawing closer to Jesus and growing in your faith. Emerson, give us our challenge for this week as we end this section of John. All right, so our challenge today is to think about what factors or influences may cause unbelief to creep into your heart. I feel like a lot of our challenges, we intend them to be practical and, you know, things that you can write down, and we certainly want you to write these down. But this is definitely something that is more reflective. you got to turn inward and really think about. You can't just give a yes or no answer to this one. So we talked about unbelief and why people did not believe. What factors or influences may cause unbelief to creep into your heart, even just little by little? We see some of these in this chapter, but what about for you? Thank you for tuning in to Working With The Word today. Our next episode we plan to release will be an interview we did a few weeks ago with Doy Moyer. We had the pleasure to sit down with Dr. Moyer and get his helpful thoughts on the topic of how to read scripture. After that, we're planning to hit another one of our listener-suggested difficult passages episodes, 
before we start our next portion of John. So until then, if there are questions, topics, books of the Bible, or difficult passages you would like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.